0: This morning, we do want to get into our Bible study. We're in the book of Nehemiah. So if you'll turn there to Nehemiah chapter three, if you're visiting with us, we go through the books of the Bible, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, chapter three here, we looked at the first five verses last week of Nehemiah, and we're going to finish the chapter. I won't read all the names. We're going to highlight the gates that are being built, the, the, uh, those who are there building those gates. Um, but there's a lot of individuals that are listed here. And you recall, as we opened up the chapter, we saw that the work of rebuilding the wall finally begins. It was after the 70 years of captivity that Cyrus, the king of the Medes and the Persians, gave the decree that the Jews could return to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. And eventually they would do that. And some 90 years after that, here is Jerusalem still with no wall around it, uh, still laying in rubble. Uh, People had built their homes, but they are very vulnerable to the enemy. They they were, one says, Nehemiah got the report in chapter 1, Nehemiah, the cupbearer to the king, the king of Persia at that time, Artaxerxes, And he says, how are things in Jerusalem to his brother that had returned from Jerusalem? And it was the report given that the people are very much afraid in distress. Uh, The city laid in rubble. The gates have been burnt. So Nehemiah, he set himself to pray for a number of four months where chapter two, where he asked permission to go back to rebuild the wall and the streets in Jerusalem once again. He was granted that permission, Chapter Two, you recall that he comes and he surveys the city, and then he tells the people why he's there, and come let us uh, let's build the wall of Jerusalem that we're no longer a reproach, and the people spoke up saying that yes, uh, let's rise up and build, and they set their hands to this good work, and always remember this that anything that we do for the Lord. The work that we do for him, the labor that we do for him, it is a good work. So before we continue on, let's pray, as Father, we do ask that you just teach us. I thank you that we're here once again. And uh, I pray that as we look at these names, as we look at these gates, we don't just read it as information, but there's application to be made. And Lord, touch our hearts with your word. And we are here for a short time um, to just... Allow you to speak to our hearts through the word of God, and it's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen. So this section of Nehemiah chapter 3, finally, finally, they begin the work of rebuilding the wall, and it reminds us today how God wants to use us to build uh, a living temple. Remember that Peter would write in his epistle that we're living stones being fitted together for this holy habitation. So we're part of a, a building that's being built, the kingdom of God, this thing called the church. And as we covered the first five verses of the chapter last week, we see that Eliashab, the priest, would rise up to build the sheep gate and hang its doors. And they consecrated the gate. It was a very special gate, particularly to the priest, because that's where the sheep were brought in for the sacrifices of the temple um, uh, sacrifice that was done so they would bring in the lambs for that and then verses three through five the next gate was the fish gate and that's where they would bring the fish from the sea of galilee and uh, we continue seeing the people and nehemiah build the wall as let's pick it up in verse six as we read that moreover jehoiada the son of passia and meshulam the son of beso repaired the old gate and they laid its beams and hung its doors With its bolts and its bars. So you can see the list of people that are there. I believe there's nearly 40 people that are listed in this chapter, different groups, all the different gates. And in verses 6 through 12, the next gate that is being told to us. That is being repaired is called the Old Gate. Now, the Old Gate, it was on the northwest corner of the city. And we see different individuals, just to kind of highlight in verse A, Aziel, uh, was a goldsmith, Hananiah was a perfumer, and some of the leaders of the district of Jerusalem. And as you read the chapter, if you want to read it in details, that one of the phrases that you'll see repeated throughout the chapter is next to him. Or Next to them it's used 13 times in this chapter, and it is also used in chapter four is the building will continue uh, being described to us and how the people uh, as the walls halfway built begin to be discouraged, but next to him or next to them. And I want to point out that as we are being used of God today to build the body of Christ uh, to, to kingdom of God, this thing called the church. We're working together. It isn't just me. Uh, The word for ministry is not I. It's us coming together and what God calls us to do and how he's gifted us and places and opportunities that he gives to us to serve in the body of Christ. But notice here that these men came with all different backgrounds, all different occupations, different professions. And as I think about today, the Lord does the same thing. Of all the services that have been full today, um, as he brings us together, we all different backgrounds and different experiences and um, we're all different occupations and professions. And we come together because we have one thing in common and that is we love Jesus. And we have a, uh, the body of Christ that makes us one in Christ. And here, as they're coming together, those mentioned in this chapter, there's, there's no indication that they were trained to be wall builders or construction workers. Uh, they weren't trained for that kind of work. Here, here we have goldsmiths and, and other occupations that are listed here, priests that did the sacrifices and perfumers and things like that. But what they would do is this. That they would make themselves available to do the work that God had called the people to do. And as we continue going through this and as we'll finish the chapter and go into the next chapter, we've already seen that the enemies of the Jews are mounting against them. Sambalot, Tobiah, Geshem have been mentioned in chapter 2. They're very angry that God is working Through, you know, the people here of Jerusalem, through Nehemiah to rebuild the wall around the city of Jerusalem. Keep in mind, this is God's holy city. This is where the Messiah is going to walk the streets. This is where we're going to see that Jesus would take a cross and walk out the city gates of Jerusalem, the Damascus Gate, and go to a place of execution. And the enemy's not happy about it. So they're mounting together the enemies of the Jews that come against that work. And we're going to see the tactic of the enemy as we continue through the book of Nehemiah, that the enemy taunts and mocks and uh, threatens and intimidates and causes confusion and tries to distract. All those things that Satan does with you individually as you're growing in the Lord, desiring to please the Lord and serve the Lord. With your family when it comes to this church family. Don't be ignorant of Satan's devices, is what Paul would tell the Corinthian church. And we will see the enemy coming against them just as he will come against us. And one of the things that he does is he intimidates. One of the things that he does is he's called the accuser of the brethren is he'll tell you that you can't serve. You can't serve in any capacity because you aren't smart enough. You're not good enough. You're not qualified enough. Whatever the case may be, God could never use you because those are words that I heard when I first got saved. I didn't think God could use anybody like me. And as we realize that God does want to use us, that we're all part of the body of Christ, he wants to give us. There's a principle that I've given to you that I'm going to continue to remind you of. And I don't mean to be redundant, but you've heard me say this, that your greatest ability is your availability. They made themselves available to do the work of the Lord. And we will see that Nehemiah is going to continue to be with them to see the work that it is finished. And the greatest ability is your availability and it is your dependability. And whatever few gifts and little talents that he's given to you as you are directed and empowered by the Lord to do the work of the Lord... You will accomplish more than the one who doesn't have the passion or the desire or the commitment to do the Lord's work. But they seem so gifted. They seem so talented. I have seen those that are very gifted in, you know, uh, and, and seem very talented and they want to serve the Lord. But there's laziness, perhaps. Or they don't make themselves available to do the work of the ministry. And the greatest ability that any of us have is just to say, Lord, here I am. Who shall I send? The Lord said to Isaiah, send me. Lord, I want to be available and you help me. You give me, you call me. And Lord, that I want to be used in a way that I'm available and I am dependable to whatever it is that you have for me. So here, as we continue in verse 13, the old gate, and then we move on to the next gate, the Hanun in verse 13, and the inhabitants of Zanoah repaired the valley gate. They built it and hung its doors with its bolts and bars and repaired a, uh, a thousand cubits, that's about 1,500 feet, of the wall as far as the refuge gate. So the valley gate, which would lead to the valley of Hinnah, it's it's on the south of the, where the temple was built. It's in a little valley that, that runs there. If you go there today, they made it a very beautiful park. You can walk through there, and there's benches and there's trees. It's it's really, really pretty, the Valley of Hinnom. But back at this time in, in the history of Jerusalem, it wasn't so beautiful. And it would be this gate, the valley gate, and the refuge gate, that would lead to the southern point of the city here, to this valley. But this valley gate, first of all, it speaks of the trials and difficulties that we will experience in life. Jesus would say that you will have tribulation. He did not say that you might have tribulation. And I think that most of us that are here, as longer that we live, we realize that we will go through the trials and difficulties and the challenges of life. And Jesus said, you will have that tribulation, but he didn't leave us there. Be of good cheer, for I've overcome the world. And James says, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, because the testing of your faith works patience and let patience have his perfect work. There's a testing of our faith when we go through the trials and when we go through the difficulties. We say, Lord, why am I going through this? And Lord, why don't you do something now? Do you see? Do you hear? And I know that there are some at this service, just as there have been some in the previous two services, that you're passing through the valley gate, that you're going through the trials and difficulties. You're going through the hurt and the pain and the tough circumstances. And I want you to know that the Lord is with you and his promises are still true for you. And that he is working and he's going to see you through. He loves you and he's not going to leave you as an orphan. But as we look to him, know that he's with us and he's going to be true to his word and he is faithful. So we have the valley gate and then verse 14 as we continue reading here, Malchai the son of Rechab, leader of the district of beth hak repaired the refuse gate. He built it and hung its doors with its bolts and bars. So the next gate, it's also uh, maybe some of your translations, perhaps the King James, if you have one, it's called the Dung Gate. That's where the garbage of the city would be thrown, and they would burn the garbage there in that valley of Henan. And it was also a place, when you look at the historical books, that it had a very dark history because the people of Jerusalem, when they were involved in idol worship, particularly during Ahaz day, Ahaz was a terrible king uh, during the time of Isaiah. And he was one that plunged the nation deep into idol worship and occultic practices. It was after him that Manasseh did the same thing. And Manasseh, he was uh, the king of Judah, for a longer period than any other king, 55 years. And it was during the reign of Ahaz and Manasseh that the people were so involved in idol worship and occultic practices that they were actually sacrificing their children in the arms of Moloch in that valley. It was the place where Jeremiah, as he was ministering there in Jerusalem, He was warning the leaders, the civil leaders and the religious leaders. He pointed from the refuge gate to that valley and said, as he warned the leaders, you need to repent. You need to repent or the city is going to be burnt. It's going to be a refuge. It's going to uh, be destruction that's going to come against you that you've never seen before. And we know that's what happened at the hands of Babylon. They refused to repent from the idol worship. It is very important, listen, that we have the refuge of the world, the the garbage in us to be thrown out, to be burned out of us through the purging fire of the Holy Spirit. The Bible speaks about how the Lord is refining us, desires to purge us. God spoke to the nation here in Isaiah's time, as you read in his book in chapter 1, he says, I will purge away your dross. We have an old song that maybe some of you remember if, you, if you've been going to church for a while. It was called Refiner's Fire. It was a very popular song. I remember the words of it. But the Lord wants to refine us. He wants to purge us. And here the goldsmiths are mentioned. And when the goldsmiths and the silversmith, what they would do is they would heat up the metal. And as they heated it up and it became a a liquid, the dross would come to the top and they would scrape off the dross. They would scrape off the impurities. And they kept heating it up until they scraped off more dross until finally the goldsmith or the silversmith could see his reflection there in, in that liquid, knowing that it had been purified. The Lord wants to see something of himself in us, right, as Christians, And if you pray, which we should be praying, Lord, purge out that which is unclean, that which is garbage, that which needs to be purged out of my life. I'll tell you what will happen. He'll turn the heat up. He'll do that work in your life. And it's not to burn you up and do you in, but it's to purify you. That you might turn to him and say, Lord, Whatever it is that you want to do in my life, keep working that in my life to purify my heart. Get that stuff out. Purge my heart. I want to be more like you, Lord, but the heat will be turned up. And as we continue on in verse 15 through 25, we have what is told to us, the builders and the fountain gate. Let's read verse 15 that Shalon, the son of koh uh, Hosea, leader of the district of Mizpah, repaired the fountain gate. He built it and covered it and hung its doors with its bolts and bars and repaired the wall of the pool of Shalah by the king's garden. As far as the stairs that go down from the city of David, the the pool of Shalah, or it might be in their translation, Shaloah. Scholars believe, no doubt, this is speaking of the pool of Siloam, and that might ring a bell with you. Remember in John chapter 9, the man who was born blind, that Jesus went up, he rubbed mud in his eyes, and he said, go wash in the pool of Siloam. Siloam, which means sent. And so the, the blind man made his way from the temple area down to that pool, about a quarter of a mile walk. It was at the very bottom of Jerusalem, inside the city wall. It was fed by the water uh, tunnel that Hezekiah had built some 300 years before this time when the Assyrians were a threat to Jerusalem. And so Hezekiah had this project where they would dig from the the Kidron Valley and and down by uh, where the the springs were, Pool Siloam, and they would dig for almost 1,800 feet in both at each end, and they would come and they would meet in the middle. Absolutely amazing engineering feat. You can actually walk through that tunnel today if you go there. And the water is running through it as it was 3,000 years ago, 2,500 years ago, whatever the case may be when Hezekiah made that tunnel. And then they actually found the pool of Siloam. They excavated it not long ago, a few decades ago, and they found it. And that's where the miracle of the man being healed of his blindness. So it's an interesting uh, place that is there. And as we know that the scripture tells you and I, this gate here, the fountain gate, that we're to be filled with the living water that God has for you and for me. Jesus in John chapter 4, that he's talking to the Samaritan woman at Jacob's well. And he's talking to her about living water. And she says, where is this water? You know, how do I draw from this water? And Jesus said to her that if you drink of this water that is from Jacob's well, you're going to thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give will never thirst. But the water I give him will be in him a fountain of water springing up to everlasting life. So I got a question for all of us this morning. Are you thirsty? Are you thirsty this morning? So what well have you been drinking from? And there's people in the world that we know, and even Christians, unfortunately that they drink from the water of the world. What's the latest fad, the world's philosophy, the world's ways, you know, the the world's success and all of this, very worldly, and they're dry eventually because they're drinking from the, the well of the world. And Jesus says, I have living water to give to you. And you will not truly be refreshed and renewed in the Lord unless you're coming to him. Even as John chapter 7, it's the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles. And Jesus is there in Jerusalem. Now the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths, it was like a week-long camp out. They would come, the people in the fall, to Jerusalem, and they would make these little tabernacles. They would make these little booths, and they would sleep under the stars. And they would commemorate how the Lord brought them through the wilderness for 40 years, provided water for them, manna from from heaven, and brought them into the promised land. And during the week, the priests would do a procession where they would go from the temple court area where all the people were camping out and around in Jerusalem. They would walk down, make a procession down to the pool of Siloam. They would fill up their pots. They would come back singing psalms. And then they would pour out the water on the pavement. And it symbolized how God provided water for them through the rock. Remember the rock that provided water for them in the wilderness? Well, on the last day of the great feast, as Jesus is there, that we know that they would make a procession, what we were told, they would go to the pool of Siloam, they would come back, but there was no water in their pots. And the reason there was no water, because it commemorated how the Lord brought them into the promised land, and they didn't need the rock to provide water. That it was a land flowing with milk and honey. And it's at that time that Jesus stood up in the last day of the Feast of Tabernacle. And he cries, out of any of you thirst, come to me and drink. And he who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water, speaking of the Holy Spirit. We need the filling of the Holy Spirit. You go to him. You go to him if you're thirsty. And I say this, and I hope you understand what I'm saying. That a lot of people are thirsty, and they're wondering, and they're hungry, and they think the answer is going to a counselor. They think the answer is going to whoever it might be. We're here to help. We're here to to minister to you. There's safety in a multitude of counselors to be a blessing to you. Yes, we do need each other, but you go to Christ. You go to him, and you drink of him, and you draw close to him and the lord desires to fill you with his holy spirit to overflowing but it's him personally that is your wonderful counselor that's going to fulfill you and satisfy you if you're thirsty this morning the answer is jesus and say lord i need to be filled filled with you with the holy spirit drawing close to you and knowing you and walking with you growing strong I'm so thirsty. I'm so tired of the world and the things around me. And the Lord will honor that prayer. Because he says, come to me. Come to me. And in verse 26, as we continue, as we see the next gate, the seventh gate. And moreover, Nathanim, who dwelt in Ophel, made repairs as far as as the place in front of the water gate towards the east and on the projecting tower. Then the Tychoites repaired another section next to the great projecting tower as far as the wall of Ophel. So the next gate is the water gate. Notice that Nathiem dwelt in Opel. Opel, It was a hill south of the temple area between the horse gate, which is mentioned next to the water gate. It is believed that it was more heavily fortified and had a tower because it was close to the water supply. The gate reminds us how we're told, men, husbands, listen, don't tune out. You're to wash your wife with the water of the word. Jesus said that we are clean by the words I've given to you. And as we go through today, this is for all of us. We need to be washed with the water of the word. It's pretty dusty out there, isn't it? And you can come home at the end of the day and you just, don't you feel like yuck? Because all the conversation that you've heard, all the stuff going on around you, all the information in front of you, and we need to be washed with the water of the word. Husbands, parents, or whoever you are. In that same chapter, we're told, speaking in hymns and psalms and spiritual songs and making melody in your heart to the Lord. So the question again, in the honesty of your heart, not to condemn you at all, but to help you. What's the atmosphere of your home? Are we coming home and we're murmuring and complaining and the boss this and the guy's that and the traffic's terrible and. This person cut me off, and the store is jam-packed. Are we complaining and murmuring? You know, that's what we talk about. We're at the dinner table. That's what our kids are hearing. Or are they hearing spiritual psalms, hymns, and thanksgiving to the Lord, the word of God that's being spoken, thankful for the Lord? The peace of God is in your your home, making melody in your heart because you're thankful that you have the Lord. Or is it carnal? Is it just worldly? What's coming out of your mouth and what's being said? Are you washing your family with the water of the word? Your kids, grandparents, those who are linked to you in your life? And as we continue reading in verse 28, Beyond the horse gate, the priest made repairs in front of his own house. Underline that. We're going to come back to that. This gate would lead to the east side of the temple proper into the Valley of Kidron. On the other side was the Valley of, was the Mount of Olives. It was the gate where wicked Ataliah was executed in 2 Chronicles chapter 23. You say, who was she? Well, you can read the chapter. You can see that she was a very evil individual. The daughter of Ahab and and Jezebel, Ahab up north, the king of the ten northern tribes, plunged the nation deep into Baal worship. Jezebel would kill some of the prophets of God. Uh, They were very, very wicked. And their daughter would marry the king of Judah. And she ended up trying to destroy the royal line of David, which was very significant because that would be the line Messiah would come from. So not having time to explain all that was taking place, Atalias' son, who was the king of Judah, he ends up dying. She rises up, takes the throne, and she tries to kill all the royal heir. Well, as she does that, the king had a daughter, um, and she had a son. His name was Joash. He was one years old. And he was hidden in the house of God for six years. And then after that time, when he was seven, they brought him out and he was crowned the king and they executed Ataliah. You see, it reminds us, as I've already mentioned, that when God is working and God is moving, Satan's going to come against that work. He's going to come and try to stop him moving in your life, working in your life. The horse gate reminds us of spiritual warfare. And to remember that God is faithful to see us through the horse gate. Uh, a horse was a symbol of strength and power. And God is the source of that strength so that we can finish the race. And know that God will be true to his word, as I've already mentioned. And you look to him. You put on the whole armor of God that you can resist the fiery darts of the enemy. With it, to be able to stand. Uh, again, be not ignorant of Satan's devices. And know that he will complete that which concerns you. Being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will bring it to completion. Especially in the day of Christ Jesus. It brings a lot of comfort to me. And then as we read in verse 29, that after Zadok, the son of Immer made repairs in front of his own house. And after him, Shemaiah, the son of Shechaniah, the keeper of the east gate, made repairs. And we see that this would be the workers mentioned also in verse 30. But the east gate was called the Golden Gate. Now, tradition says that Jesus went through the eastern gate of Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. He got on the back of a foal of a donkey, came down the Mount of Olives, crossed the Kidron Valley into the eastern gate. Now, today, if you look at the ancient city of Jerusalem and the wall around it, you see pictures of the eastern gate. It's sealed with stones. It's not the gate that Jesus went through. Uh, That was destroyed in 70 A.D. by the Romans. But in the Ottoman period, they built the wall around Jerusalem that you see today. And this Ottoman sultan, uh, Salome, the, the Magnificent, he was called, he builds the gate, but he sealed it. And the reason he sealed it, and sealed to this day, that's back in 1541. He had heard, and he was told, that the Christians believed that the Christian Messiah was going to come through the Eastern Gate. So he's trying to prevent Jesus from coming through the Eastern Gate, which is foolish, of course, isn't it? But the Eastern Gate is associated with the coming of Messiah. And we know that in the tribulation period, there's going to be the tribulation temple that's going to be built, Right? That temple will be destroyed when Jesus comes back. And in the millennium reign, as you read from Ezekiel 40 through 48, there's going to be another temple. It's called the millennial temple that's going to be a magnificent temple. So the description is there, including the eastern gate that Jesus will come into. The thousand-year reign, the millennium period, we know that Jesus is going to come back and reign, and we're going to rule and reign with him as he comes and rules from Jerusalem. The horse gate, riding on a white horse, Jesus. He isn't going to come riding lowly on the back of a foal of a donkey. He's going to come on a white horse wearing a crown in great power and glory, and we're going to come back with him. So here, the, the eastern gate, and then verse 31, after him, Malchijah, one of the goldsmith, made repairs as far as the house in Nathenim, and the merchants in front of the Mifka gate and as far as the upper room at the corner. So this is the tenth and final gate, the Mifka gate, located at the northeast corner of the city. Now the NIV, I believe, and other translations may call it the inspection gate. It has a military connotation with the gathering of the troops and inspecting of the troops. Paul writing in 2 Corinthians, or 2 Timothy chapter 2, that you therefore must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. In other words, that you and I are enlisted as a soldier for Jesus Christ as we're living for him, and it is a battle. We know that. The world comes against us, the enemy, Satan, as We already have talked about fights against us. And that happens whether you're a pastor serving the Lord in any capacity or you're a parent raising your children in the ways of the Lord. You must endure hardship because the world does not conform to a life that is committed to Jesus Christ. And the world is coming against us more and more. And a day is going to come, listen, where you feel discouraged or you feel like compromising, don't, don't because the inspection is coming. The inspection is coming that we will stand at the Bema reward seat of Jesus Christ. Second Corinthians chapter 5, Romans chapter 14. Believers get confused. What do you mean I'm going to be standing at the judgment seat of Christ? I, I thought I was saved. You are saved. You're going to be at the Bema reward seat of Jesus Christ to be judged what you've done in the body, whether good or bad, as Paul writes to the Corinthians. They knew what that meant to receive rewards for what you have done for Christ. Not talking about salvation. Jesus paid the price for our sins. He took the judgment for you and for me. But there's rewards that He wants to give to us as what we have done for Christ. That's what's going to last. To live for Him. Because we will stand before Him. And then as we finish in verse 32 in between the upper room at the corner, as far as the sheep gate, the goldsmiths and the merchants made repairs. Remember, we started the chapter, verse 1, with the sheep gate being mentioned. Now it's the last gate mentioned again. Speaking of Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He's the first, He's the last. He's the beginning, He's the end, He's the Alpha, the Omega. It starts with Jesus, it ends with Jesus. It's all about Jesus. And before we end, listen, don't pack it up yet. I said in verse 28 that the priest made repairs each in front of his own house. We have seen the phrase next to them, next to him, but also what you will see the phrase repeated is in front of their home, in front of their house. Men again, but this is for all of us. You're called to be the priest of your home. And I want to remind you that ministry begins at home. And for us to say, all of us, that, Lord, I know that I have a role and responsibility that has been given to me as a man of God, as a husband, as a father in my home. That's where ministry begins. That you're washing your wife with the water of the word. You're cherishing her. You're serving her. You're willing to lay down your life for her. You're raising your children in the ways of the Lord. And listen, none of us do this perfectly. None of us are perfect parents or perfect spouses. But he has called you men to be the priest of your home. And we are to step forward and we are to ask the Lord for help. Help me to be the priest that you called me to be, the leader of my home. And it's a very humble thing. It doesn't mean we walk around all dictatorial and and being overbearing. It means you're serving and you're living with your wife in an understanding way. The things that are important to her need to be important to you. And you have prayer in your home and the word of God and hymns and spiritual songs that are being expressed in your home and thanksgiving to the Lord. And I mention that because over the years, I've had guys that have come and said, I want to be in ministry, you know, I want to, to be in ministry, and it's like, I always look at what's your home life like? Are things good at home? I'm not looking for perfection. But I've seen too many guys that have sacrificed their family on the altar of ministry. And I cannot do the things that God has called me to do over the last 32 years if Things weren't right at home. And again, it was not perfect. But to take very seriously that ministry begins at home, and it begins with all of us. Guys, take care of your family. Love your wife. Serve her. Pray for your kids. Be ministering. Protect your home. The priest made repairs each in front of his own house And as you read through the chapter in verse 10, Jediah, he's mentioned in front of his house. Jediah means he who calls unto God. May our homes be places of prayer. Are you praying with your spouse? Are you praying with your kids? Or are you saying, I'm too busy? I hope they do okay. Kind of a dark world out there. You better do more than hope. Be praying with them and for them and with your spouse. If you haven't done it for a while, guys, take your wife by the hand and say, I just want to pray with you. I want to pray for you. You pray with your kids. It's supposed to be nice today. I know football's going to be on. Enjoy the game. But listen, go take a walk at halftime. Take a little break and say, Lord, are there things in my home that aren't right? Words that are being spoken, things that are being watched. Carnality and worldliness. Jediah, he who calls unto God, Lord, help me, forgive me. Verse 23, Benjamin, son of my right hand, speaking of protection, our homes must be places of protection and peace because the world's going to come in and invade and the enemy's going to try to get a foothold in any way that he can. You protect your home. You be one that there's peace in your home. Zadok, verse 29, means justice. May our homes be places of justice. It's a piece of integrity, discipline. Is there godly character? As you lead your home. Or is it, I'll bring my kids to church so they can learn morals. But you go home and there's a lot of worldliness. A lot of carnality. A lot of sinful things that are taking place. And the kids know it. And they see it and they become very angry. It's a mixed message. May you have godly integrity and character in your home and humility. Mashulam, it means devoted. May our homes be places of devotion to the Lord, looking to the Lord. Ministry begins there. And then come here and minister. Enjoy what the Lord has for you. But I learned so much from this godly man and this account that is given to us through those who did the work of the Lord. Look to him. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. Drinking unto the Lord. Be washed with the water of the word. If you're going through the valley gate, know that he's true to you. And remember this, that he desires to strengthen you as the enemy comes against you in every way. So, Father, we thank you. We thank you so much for just all these things that are listed here that we make from the implication, the application, because you want to do that work in our lives. You're building us to men and women of God. You are, Lord, building a church. And we need you. We can't do it ourselves. So I pray that everyone here right now, if there's some things that you need to just... The Lord convicts us of these things, not to push us away. Listen. It's to draw you to him because he is forgiving. They say, Lord... I have failed, I have missed the mark. I have sinned. There's not integrity in my home. there's sin, murmuring, complaining. I'm not being a priest in my home that that you've called me to, not that any of us do it again. <laughs> Perfectly. We all fall short, but Lord, I need you. So, Lord, help us be the men of God you called us to be, the husbands. Help us be the, the wives and the mothers and the grandparents. Whatever state that we're in, as Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 7, that we're going to move forward in that state in a godly way. We need you, Lord. We need your guidance and strength. And I know that there are people that are here that are thirsty. May they drink of the living water. May we have a heart that says, Lord, fill me. To abide in you. To abide in your word and your love. So you can be refreshed spiritually. I pray for those who are going through the valley gate right now you would strengthen them and help them. You know that you're with them and your word is true and you're working. Father, I thank you for this time here today. and May we spend that time with you, just looking to you, calling out to you because we can do that as your children. And I also want to pray, if there's anyone here, you're listening, that you've never made a commitment to Christ for salvation, He is your salvation. And the invitation from him is for you to come. To realize that you're a sinner in need of forgiveness. That's why Jesus came, to die for you, specifically for your sins. And he hung on that cross. And he cried out, it is finished. He did the works. So now you come in faith, realizing that I'm not good enough. And I need the Savior of the world to be forgiven. He conquers sin and death by rising from the grave. He loves you so much. Will you call out to him? Today is the day of salvation. And you can pray, Jesus, I come to you and I ask you to forgive me, me a sinner of my sins. I ask that you would sit upon the throne of my life as Lord and Savior. I thank you for dying for me. And Lord, help me in this new beginning to grow in you. To be the man and woman that, of God that you called me to be. So I yield to you. Give my life to you. And I pray this in Jesus' name. For all of us, we walk out of this place, Lord, just being encouraged, hearing your voice. And knowing that you'll be faithful to us to honor that prayer desiring to become godly men and women in the roles that you've called us to be and responsibilities given to us. Thank you for today. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you please stand? If you need prayer for anything, we're here to pray with you and encourage you. Or if you made a decision for the Lord, have a wonderful week in the Lord. Pastor Luke's going to close this.